Girl Scout cookies asking a date to prom, applying for a job or for college. It just doesn't feel good to be rejected. But it's especially painful if you've been rejected by family or friends. If you've ever been rejected before, you know how it feels. But you aren't alone. There's someone else who knows what it's like. Someone else who has experienced rejection over and over again from family, from friends, from his own people, to complete strangers, from people he bent over backwards for, from people he literally died for. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. A theme that's been popping up over these last few weeks as we've been going through Romans is Israel's rejection of the Savior. We see it in chapter 9, again in chapter 10, and here in chapter 11 there's even more rejection. The Lord knows what it's like to be rejected. He's been rejected ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they turned their backs on Him. And His chosen people had continued to do so over and over and over again. And you and I do it too. Every time we sin, we decide, I want to do what I want to do, not what God wants me to do. How long will he put up with it? Looking at some of the passages in Romans, it seems almost that Paul is saying that God has moved on, that God has rejected his people. In passages like Romans 9, 25, he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And in 9.33, says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for his people. And in chapter 10.19, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation that has no understanding will I anger you. Which brings Paul to ask the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? Because one might take those verses to say he has, and he has moved on. Follow along in your Bibles as we hear Paul answer his question in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. It's Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. And I'd invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. Sanctify us, Lord, in your truth this morning. 
Open our hearts and our ears to receive the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins by saying, God has not rejected his people. He points to himself. He says, as God rejected his people, may it never be, look at me. Who am I? I am an Israelite. I was a Jew. I'm a Jew who's as good a Jew as there ever was, devout, upright, seeking out to silence false teachers, people who are leading people astray from Judaism. And in the midst of all of Paul's zeal, somehow God got a hold of him. God reached out in his mercy and in his grace, reached out to Saul and saved Saul, who we now know as Paul. And Paul tells his readers here in this text that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He is definitely an Israelite. He even traces his heritage back and says, I'm a descendant of Benjamin. His family knew that they are connected to Abraham, that they were sons and daughters of Abraham. Paul reminds his readers of Elijah. Elijah was one of Yahweh's prophets during the reign of King Ahab. And King Ahab was a wicked king. And his wife was even worse than the King Ahab was. They had been putting to death all of the prophets of the Lord, trying to silence the Lord's voice. And now they are seeking Elijah's life. And so Elijah is on the run, and the Lord calls out to him. But what does the Lord say to Elijah? We see it in verse 4 of our text, what the Lord says to him. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah hears this message and he understands, I'm not alone. There are still at least 7,000 other men who are believing in the Lord who have not yet bowed down to Baal and would not bow down to Baal. But the point of this verse isn't just to tell Elijah that he's not alone. The point of this verse is to tell Elijah how those 7,000 have not yet bowed down to Baal and how they would not. In verse 4, we see what Paul says here. The Lord says, I have kept for myself. I have kept for myself. The Lord was keeping them. These 7,000 souls, the Lord was keeping them, protecting them, watching over them, keeping them faithful to him. It wasn't because they were faithful. It wasn't because of their, mer their merit or their own achievements or anything that they had done that such a remnant existed, but it was because of God's gracious choice and because of God protecting his people and watching over them. I have kept for myself a remnant. The Lord was keeping them. And again, they existed only because of the grace of God. And even though it seemed to Elijah that there was no one else left but him, the Lord knew, and the Lord knows those who are his, and tells Elijah, you are safe in me. In verse 5, Paul takes us back up to date in our text. He says, in the same way then, there is also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. The remnant continues, and the remnant grows. To the people in Paul's day, it may have seemed like the Jews were callous, like they had closed their ears to the message, that they were hardened, they were stuck in their ways, and they were beyond the reach of God. Yet God says here there is still a remnant. And to the Gentile believers who are reading this letter, thinking, how? How can there still be a remnant when they're still disobedient, when they're still so callous, when they have still rejected the Lord? I don't understand. The next verse sheds light on that very question in verse 6. 
says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul goes back once again to the heart of the whole issue. How are we saved? Are we saved by works? We're not saved by works. He says we're saved by grace, and grace is apart from work. It's on the opposite end of the spectrum. They do not get along with each other. It's either grace or it's works. And Paul says it's not works, it's grace. Grace was what saved Saul, the vigilante who was dead set on getting rid of all of the Christians in his day. And if God were to save on the basis of works, would Saul even have a chance? He was killing the ones who pledged allegiance to Jesus. Saul was a person to whom Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't just neutral to Jesus. He was actively opposed and against him. And against anyone else who pledged allegiance to Jesus, Saul was out to get. And if we were saved by works, those works would have put Saul at the very end of the line if he were even in line to be saved. But here shines the beauty of verse 6. Saul wasn't saved by his works. Saul was saved by grace. And so his works meant nothing. They certainly didn't bring him any closer to the Lord, but they also didn't push him too far beyond God's gracious reach through Jesus Christ. He wasn't gone so far that he could not be saved. And Saul, who we know as Paul, was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God has not rejected his people, yet he has still kept for himself a remnant, a remnant who have been saved by God's gracious choice, not by their works, not by their will, but by grace and the mercy of Christ. As we saw in chapter 10, verse 21, God is still holding out his arms to a disobedient and obstinate people. His mercy is still available today. God has not rejected his people. So what's next? What does that mean? Paul continues in verse 7, and he asks the question, What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. The thing that Israel is seeking, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 31, we understand the thing that they're seeking is righteousness, but it's righteousness according to works. And Paul says they have not obtained it, but there is a group, a remnant, that has obtained it. It wasn't obtained by the whole, but there was a remnant who did. And who are they? Paul says they are the chosen. They are the ones who have been foreknown. They are the predestined ones. And all of these are fancy ways to say they are the elect. And then comes the million-dollar question that you might be asking yourselves. Who are the elect? How do we know who the elect are? And what hope is there for the non-elect? Are they destined to be damned? Was it, does it bring God glory to say, I choose you, you're pretty good. You said something to me last week that I really don't like, so sorry, you lost your chances. I'll take you, you, and now you're going to stick around here. Is that how God's election works? That's not how God's election works. So the question comes again, who are the elect? A theologian who is far wiser than I his name is Rosinius. He defines the elect like this. He says, who are the elect? They are the ones who claim no righteousness in themselves. They seek all their righteousness in Christ. It is only in him that election is wrought. Who are the elect? 
They are the ones who claim no righteousness in themselves. They seek all of their righteousness in Christ. It is only in Him that election is wrought. So the question again, who are the elect? How do we know who they are? And the answer is they are the ones who are trusting in Jesus for their righteousness, not their works, not indulgences, not family tree, not anything that they've done in the past, but they are trusting only and solely in Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. If you want to know if you are the elect, ask yourself this question. Are you good enough for God? Are you good enough for God in and of yourself? Or are you good enough for God? You're maybe not by yourself, but if you do the best you can and God fills in the rest, are you good enough for God then? If your answer to those questions is yes, I'm sorry, but you are mistaken. And you don't truly understand the gravity of your own sin and how awful sin is. Are you good enough for God? We have to honestly answer that question, no, we are not. And after we answer it honestly and we understand, no, we are not, there are two ways where you can go from there. You can say, well, I'm never going to be good enough and give up and turn around, and that's it. Or you can say, I'm not good enough, but look to where God's word points and says, but Jesus is good enough. And he has done everything needed to save me. I am not righteous enough in myself, but Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus saves me. And if that's your answer, then you are the elect, as you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your righteousness. Not your works, not anything that you have done, but in the grace that comes through Christ. The, right, the elect seek all their righteousness in Christ, and they claim none of it for themselves. But what happens to the rest? What happens to the others who are still trying to obtain their righteousness by works? And Paul says here in our text that they were hardened. In verses 8 through 10, he says, And God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. The reason why these people were hardened wasn't because God's grace wasn't enough. It wasn't because Jesus hasn't done enough to fully save them either. But the reason why these people weren't saved is because they had turned their backs on him. Lenski writes that God's grace is universal. It's equal. It's sufficient to save all. He doesn't give more grace to one person than to somebody else, but his grace is available to all. For Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and he desires that each person would be saved. So the question instead ought to be, with all of this grace available in Jesus Christ, why are all not saved? And the only answer we have is because of unbelief. It's because so many people stubbornly refuse to find their righteousness in Christ which he is so willing to freely give to them. The answer goes back to chapter 10, verse 21. All day long I have held my hands open to an obstinate and stubborn people. As the people continue to stand in their obstinance, to continue to stand in their stubbornness and their unbelief, God eventually gives them over to be hardened as well. And as the rest continue to hard themselves in unbelief to this wonderful grace found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, God gives them over to the desires that they have and he hardens them. 
It's not because he has rejected them. It is because they have hardened themselves in unbelief. Paul quotes David in verses 9 and 10, and he writes that their table has become a snare. It's become a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. What is he talking about? What is this table that David mentions? One scholar explains it this way. He says, Paul recognized the noble but misguided efforts of the Jews to attain righteousness and to win a favor with God. The law in which they delighted proved to be their snare because of false confidence in their ability to keep its precepts and their stubborn rejection of Christ. It became their recompense, their retribution. Their perverse attitude toward the gospel reacted in such a way that they were hardened and they wouldn't understand it or receive it. What he's saying here is this table is a blessing that God had given them. This blessing that God had given them is the law. They had the law. What the law was meant to show us that we can't fulfill it in and of ourselves. It's meant to drive us to Christ, to show us you are not righteous. You need someone who is righteous. But instead of showing them their own inadequacies, they begin to look at themselves and say, I've done a pretty good job of keeping this law. I'm doing pretty good by myself. I don't need any help. I don't need Christ. And they closed their ears to the gospel. So they would forever be slaves to their own works righteousness and the burdens that that would bring upon them. Charles Erdman, the scholar that I just quoted from, relates the Jews' predicament to us today. And he says this, he says, Such is the pathetic picture of many serious men today. They earnestly seek to live right lives, but trusting in their own strength and their own righteousness, they reject the grace that is offered in Christ. They refuse to accept the pardon and the peace and the power which he is ready to give. So they stumble alone in darkness. They struggle in weakness and weariness when in him they might find rest for their souls. These well-intentioned men who are still trying to earn their own righteousness are stumbling alone in the darkness thinking, I can do it, I'll be okay. And they struggle in weakness and weariness, wearing themselves out thin. When in Christ, everything has already been provided for. And Christ desires to give them rest for their souls. The Jews weren't the only ones guilty of trying to work their way into heaven. People are still guilty of it today. And people still want to trust in themselves to say, you know, God's done a great thing, but he needs my help as well. If I do as best as I can do, then I'll be all right. And God will take care of the rest. That's not how it works. The elect are those who realize there, are no, there is no righteousness in and of ourselves. But righteousness only comes from Christ, and that is enough. And yet even in all of this, in this rejection that has gone on, the people have turned their backs on him. God says that he still has kept a remnant for himself. A remnant who has been saved by his gracious choice. A remnant that has obtained this righteousness, not by works, but righteousness of Christ, by receiving it by grace. And so the question comes today is, is that it then? Are the rest beyond hope? And the answer is no. They are not beyond hope hope because God has not rejected his people. 
In their rejection, God has sent missionaries to the Gentiles instead. Paul went first to the synagogues to explain the gospel to the Jews, and when he was rejected, he turned his back and went to the Gentiles. And so many Gentiles were saved. But the purpose for this was more than just to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The purpose for this, as Paul writes in verses 13 through 14, says, I am an apostle of Gentiles, and I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul says here that my ministry is now turned to the Gentiles because the Jews have rejected me. But the whole goal is to bring more people to Christ. And maybe when the Jews see what God is doing amongst the Gentiles, they say, you know what, I want part of that as well. I want to be one of Jesus' own people. I want to be a part of the remnant. I want to be elect. And they stop finding their righteousness in themselves, but they find it in Christ. Paul is saying, my ministry is to spur the Jews on to jealousy so that they might come back to the Lord. As Paul continues the conversation, he writes in verse 23 of chapter 11, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And since we are saved by grace, our sins and our, or the reason why God is able to graft them in again goes back to verse 6. If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. If salvation is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Meaning it doesn't matter for how many years you've turned your back on the Lord, He has not rejected you and He still stands today with arms wide open waiting for you to come back. That he still stands today providing a remnant for himself, the chosen ones, the elect who don't find their righteousness in themselves but find it in Christ. Since we are saved by grace, our sins and our merits mean nothing. But God's grace and his righteousness mean everything. And such grace gives assurance that it's impossible, it's just as impossible for our sins to condemn us as we are in Christ, as it is for our works to save us. This grace of God which saves us shows us that it's just as impossible for our sins to condemn us as it is for our works to save us. We know that we aren't saved by our works. We've been taught that from a young age. We've been harped on it over and over again. We're saved by grace through faith. The other side of that coin is our sins, as you are in Christ, do not condemn you either. Because as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that has been dealt with on the cross. And so we have peace with God through Christ and what he has done for us. And does the law still accuse us? You bet it does. And it shows us again and again our need of Christ, our need of a Savior. It shows us again that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. But it doesn't condemn us. And as the elect come to realize their righteousness isn't enough, and as they see Jesus as being enough, and as they trust in him, their sins are erased and they are saved. Even in their disobedience, even in our disobedience today, God is still showing his mercy through Jesus Christ. And God is still standing with arms wide open, desiring to bring each person underneath his wings to save each and every person. He is still saving sinners by grace through faith. And so is there hope today for those who are not finding their righteousness in Christ, but in themselves, 
And the answer is yes, as they find it in Christ. God has not rejected his people. And God has not rejected you either. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are God who is familiar with rejection, that you still in your grace and your patience and your mercy put up with us. You put up with the times that we turn our backs on you. And Lord, for your people, for your people who have continued to turn their back on you over and over and over again, God, you say that you still have a remnant and we praise you for that remnant, the chosen who you have predestined, the chosen Lord who find their righteousness in you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see our righteousness in you, that you would help us to bring this message of reconciliation to all of those around us who are still under the burden of their own sin, to point them to what you have done for us on the cross. And Jesus, that you are enough for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.